And uh, y'all are walking in during announcements, but uh, this is a big next week is a big weekend. James and Kelly, stand up, stand up. We're getting married. Getting married. <laughs> <laughs> and what's really cool is James uh, used to go on a new job as well. Right? He'll be a flight instructor. So anyway, some people just start young, don't they? I mean. Flight instructor getting married, ready to go. We're so comfortable. So, anyway, really excited. And uh, I'm excited about bringing you this word because this is a, a chapter that is going to unfold in a, a, an amazing fashion. It's going to come through in a, in a, in a period where uh, it's going to look like it's just telling one story, but there's a lot of little stories to be told in here. So, if you're brand new here, uh, what we do is we walk through. Uh, verse by verse by verse by verse. And we just walked through, and we don't have, you know, I don't forget when I was brand new, we started this church. Shale was up here, and Shale got up here, and he said, I don't have a sermon title. And I'm like, what? You don't have a sermon title? You can't do that. You know, like, I started panicking. And, and then I started realizing that there's a sermon title. And then, like, um, you really have any points on there on the screens. You know, like, I was used to certain points and, like, quotes. And, like, and sometimes we do that, but. Sometimes we don't do that. And so in this particular case, if you ever wonder, like, wow, how many different notes to write down? It's really writing down whatever God speaks to you from this word. Because when I, if you see me walk up here, I've said this before, if you ever see me walk up, here's my secret. It's just verses blown up on huge 18-font bolt because I can't see. And all we're doing is walking through Scripture. I don't have any, there's no... There's no Jake points in here. As much as I like to put that in there so you can tweet it and make it look really cool. <laughs> Hashtag or something. This is solid scripture. The ability, what I'm about to do, is something that can be done with you to walk in through scripture at any given time. The Bible's there. And if it looks like you come across pieces of scripture, well, I never saw that before. That's the whole goal of the day. And to also say this. There are times I've been up here preaching, looked up there, saw something, thought, I never knew that before. Mostly that happens at the 9 o'clock service, where they're like the practice run. I'm sitting there thinking, you know, I never noticed that before. So by the time I get to you, it looks like I know what I'm talking about. But anyway, chapter 20 is going to unfold in, um, in rapid fashion. And, but it's a really awesome story of friendship, loyalty, but above that, what God has for us. In what's called a covenant. I'm going to kind of explain that a little bit. So let me go ahead and do this. Let me just pray for me. I'll get this right, and then we'll jump in. Okay, let's do that. Father, we thank you for today. Speak to me, please, and uh, let's don't let me be a distraction in any way. Let your word come out crystal clear in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So if you have a Bible, John, I'm sorry, John, First Samuel chapter 20. We're going to go there, and let's kick off in verse one. Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah, and came and said before Jonathan. These three questions. What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? Okay, let's stop right here and catch up in case some of you are walking in and have no idea what we're talking about. There are three characters I want you to identify with today. There is a king, King Saul, S-A-U-L. He is the king over Israel. He has lost his favor with God. He is he is no longer He's the, he's the anointed Israel, king of Israel. He's the current king. God's going to allow him to reign in that area. He has a son named Jonathan. This son 
you would think would be the next in line, right? The king dies, the son, the prince steps up and takes over. No, not in this particular case. You're anointed the king over Israel. So you have Saul, his son Jonathan. Third character is David. David is the next anointed king over Israel. David has been told, you're going to be king over Israel. He had no idea. He didn't seek out this job. Nor, by the way, did Saul at one time. So Saul has lost favor. He's been sinful. He's not been he's not been ideal king. That's another statement, really, when you think about it. Jonathan and David now to interact more, they have formed a solid friendship. And they have entered into a best friend status. They this isn't beyond like, oh, this is one of my close friends. This is when when one of these friends die, you know. Your heart has gone out of this earth. This is a friendship knit together at the soul. And so David and Jonathan are best friends. Saul is wanting to kill David. Why? Because he's jealous. He's tried throwing a spear at David three different times because he's jealous of David. David's never done a thing to offend, to do anything wrongful to the king. So, so now you see why when David asks these questions, he goes, what have I done? Where is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? Thank you, David, for asking these questions. You deserve to ask these questions. You've done nothing. You do not deserve to be put to death. Why is he why is he doing this? Why? Because he's insecure, he's jealous. The man's lost his mind. When it says they left Naoth and Ramah, what does that mean? Naoth and Ramah, if you weren't here last week, is a that is where David went to hide. It's a really fascinating story. I'll tell you in 30 seconds what happened. He went to hide in this particular place. It's called a school of prophets. Only prophets would go there. They would hang around other prophets because I guess if you talk to God, it's kind of a big deal. You know, they identify with so many people. Sam would hang out there. Well, David knew to go there and be with Samuel. He went there to hide out. And what did, what did uh, the king do? King Saul, he sent three arresting parties to go arrest David. First one goes in, they fall down and start worshiping God. Second arresting party goes in, boom. Third, same thing. King Saul hears about it. He goes, what happens to him? Falls on his knees and starts worshiping. Whenever you hear, oh, every knee shall bow to the Lord, that is not just some false sight promise and hope we had that maybe that'll happen. That will happen. He has the power to make that happen now and he did it at that particular place over a couple thousand years ago. It was the power of God so prevalent that men went there with all their intentions and fell on their face. But it was a religious moment for these men. And what happens with religious moments when you don't have a relationship it fades. And so what happened? They left that place. They took off. They left. What happened? Saul didn't learn anything. Saul still wanted to go after David and kill him. So at this point, when David, this is some time after, somebody says, what is happening? Why is, why does your dad want to kill me? What have I done? Look at verse 2. Jonathan says to David, this is Jonathan speaking, far from it. You're not going to die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. 
Why should my father hide this from me if it's not so? That's an important verse to recognize. Is Remember the three times he threw the spear at David trying to kill him? Jonathan wasn't there. All the times that, that, they, that, that King Saul was saying, I can't wait, I'm going to corner David, I'm going to kill him. Jonathan was not there. Why? Verse 3. But David bowed again saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. He thinks, do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. For truly, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. Powerful verse. Go back and you could to verse 3. Ariel, and you look at here, it says, David bowed again saying, your father knows that you are my best friend. Your father knows this. He's not going to tell you these things. He says, there's just but a step between me and death. I'm, I'm about to die. And go to verse 4 again. Verse 4 says, and then, and then Jonathan said to David, said, whatever you say, I will do for you. That is a huge position. Think about this. In every, in all three characters, let me do this. Let's think of two characters. King Saul, we know, has lost his mind, right? Let's try not to identify with him today. You know, <laughs> we've all lost our mind at certain points, but King Saul lost his mind. David and Jonathan are both struggling with incredible... David still wanted to be loyal. He wants to serve under Jonathan's dad. Jonathan is saying, well, why don't you? He says, because your dad wants to kill me. There's no way my dad wants to kill me. He would tell me these things. He tells me every little detail. There's no way he's going to leave that out. But he wants to kill you. Why would that happen? Well, this is conversation is going on. And then Jonathan says to David, if he's trying to kill you, understand something. Whatever you say, I'll do for you. This is the prince of Israel saying to his best friend, you tell me what to do and I'll do it. It's a big deal. Verse 5. David said to Jonathan, okay, this is by the way, to lay out a strategy. You ever wonder, do we just live on the hope of Christ and we, you know, we go on his promises and we don't think about strategy? No. You, God has given you a brain. He's given you abilities. Classic example of incredible strategy. Here it is. David says to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow's a new moon, and I should not fail to sit at a table with the king. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field the third day on the evening. Stop right here. Let me just break this down a little bit. You don't mind me doing this. As I read through this, sometimes things jump out. When David says to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow's a new moon, there's a new moon festival. This is a religious festival. Everybody went. There would be a big one in the palace where everybody was expected to go, but then there would be small ones too, families. It was like a Thanksgiving there. It was over a moon. And it was a religious festival. But according to Leviticus, you had to cleanse yourself to be able to go. It's very uh, You had to really purify yourself to be back there. But he says, but let me, when he says, let me go, what he's saying is, give me an excuse not to go. You can do that. You're the prince. Jonathan, tell me I don't have to go. That I may hide myself in the field that evening. Because watch, here's the, here's the rest of the strategy. If your father misses me at all, then say, David, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, the city, for there is a yearly sacrifice for all the clan. If he says good, it will be well with your servant. But if he's angry, then know that harm is determined by him, by your father. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant. For you brought your servant to a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself. 
for why should you bring me to your father? Now, go back one more verse, verse 7. If you see this verse, uh, where is it? Maybe it's in 6, sorry. Where does it say covenant? Verse 8, no, I'm sorry. Go back to verse 8. Sorry, you're all going to be like kind of headed when you leave here. So it's brought to a covenant of the Lord with you. What is a covenant? A covenant is a bond and a relationship or a, a commitment made between people. It's not a, like, when we sign a lease here in this building we're in, we didn't sign a covenant. It's a lease document. When you get a home, you have a mortgage. That is, a, that is a, if you enter into a business relationship with two individuals, forget that it's a building, forget it's a home, and you go into two individuals, you enter into a contractual agreement. A covenant would be with James and Kelly, you enter into a covenant of marriage to say, you're not just going to this because, hey, I like you, I kind of like you, and my buddy, let's do life. No, you're saying, I'm going to live for you, you're going to live for me. We're into a covenant. A covenant based on this, an example of the covenant that God has between you and I. There is a covenant that exists between you and I with God. Well, there is a covenant that they made with each other. That if you die, I die. If you succeed, I succeed. This is a powerful word, the word covenant. When we talked and Ron and Sandy stood up, and Janet, you stood up, we entered into a covenant with you to say this. That if something were to happen, and you were to fail, you, something were to happen, and you would simply just need you. Let's say you were to need us. We would come to you. But here it is. If any of you, as a member of Creekside, fail, you know what our responsibility to do? Come alongside of you because we're in a covenant. Let me tell you what a lot of churches will do. The moment there's failure, the moment there's discouragement, the moment there's somebody that doesn't meet up expectations, what happens? The gossip train hits. That starts going around. Then it's the words like church discipline, what do we do? What do we before you even broach the area of discipline, the first thing you do is go in to see how you can help and be alongside that person. If you ever walk up to me, and you're going to hear me wear my minister hat real quick and be real defensive as a shepherd. If you ever walk up to me and say, you know this person, what they're dealing with? First thing I'm going to do is look at you if you're a member of this church and say, you know what you need to do? You need to come alongside that person in every way and do what you can to help. That is a covenant relationship that we have. Here's a, here's a motto we can live by. You ready for this? If I fail you, don't fail me failing you. If I fail you, don't fail me failing you. That means um, we need to have a good place where you not only succeed, but a good place to fail. There's, there's a difference there, isn't there? There's a sense to come. Verse 9. Jonathan said, Far be it from you. I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you. What did I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go into the field. So they both went out to the field. So long story short, they developed a plan. David says this, Jonathan, I'm not going to show up. If your dad is angry, if your dad's not angry, it means it's okay. Just come, give me a signal. I'll come down. We'll all eat together. But if your dad is angry, it means it's a fruit of the fact that he wants to kill me. You've got to remember that. This is okay. Verse 12. They go out into the field and the Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. 
When I have sounded out to my father about this time tomorrow, or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not tend and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go into safety. May the Lord be with you, as he's been with my father. Stop, if we could. And what he's saying is this. Let's pray that my dad doesn't react. Then things will be okay. But if my dad does react to me and I learn that he intends to kill you, understand something. I will come for you. And if I don't, I don't warn you that he's wanting to kill you. So help me God, I hope I die. You see the, the sincerity behind what's happening here, right? Verse 14. If I am still alive, show me steadfast love of the Lord. You're okay, Jacob, poor thing. <laughs> that man is the most loving father you can ever find. Like that guy right there. You come alongside that man and you love on that man at every point. Bringing up these kids by himself. I mean, just loving on them in every way. You, ever, you never know. You walk by people and think, oh, they got all together. And, you know, that guy will take a man and his kids out for lunch. You do that. Just a little advertisement for Jacob. That's what he But, uh,. Anyway, um, where was I? Okay, verse 14. If I'm still alive, show me steadfast love of the Lord. I may not die. Do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. I'm going to go back and tell you about that verse in a second. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, that he loved him as he loved his own soul. When he says, I love him as I love my own soul, this is a soul brother. This is somebody who, in this day and age, we are so weakened what it means to be a friend. We are so weakened the platform and the definition of what it means to be a friend that was not done here. But what we said in the previous verse is really pretty interesting. Go back to all this. Verse 16. And so Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David. But he says... He looks at the house of David. You know what he's looking at? He says, I'm looking at your future home, your future. David's alone. David has no connection with jealous brothers. We don't know where his dad is or if he's even alive at this moment. Jonathan knows this man is going to be the next king of Israel. And we said in the previous verse, just have mercy on us. Don't smite us. Don't kill us. This is interesting. This would be like me going to a prison, walk into a guy doing life, look at him and say, hey, listen, have mercy on me. Look out for me. Give me a job when I get out of here. When you get out of here, remember who I am. I'm sure that Gerald Gardner would look around and go, what are you talking about? This is a man who has orders by getting to the entire royal court, including Jonathan, to kill this man. This man has a death warrant signed, not by a magistrate, but by the very king of Israel. And you have the son of the king of Israel looking at him and says, remember when you're king, not to kill me. Why would he say that? Because when you became king, what's the first thing you did in this era? You killed all the direct descendants of the previous king. Why? Because they didn't want him coming back around. Jonathan is looking at an, an uncrowned king and he says this. Say this to a man being chased 
Remember me and please spare my life. And spare the life of others. This is dialogue getting deep. Look with me in verse 18. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow's a new moon, and you'll be missed, because your seat will be empty. By the way, when I read through this, you can go through this verse very quickly. And so Jonathan's reiterating his strategy, right? Your seat's going to be empty. But there's something in me that thinks this. So tomorrow's a new moon, and you will be missed because your seat is empty. I think it's going to be recognition that where's David? Well, somebody may be asking, why would it be noticeable if David's not there? Is, it, is he not there because he was a valiant hero? It would also be because he's not there because why? He's married to David's daughter, or, or to Saul's daughter. David is married to the king's daughter. And so this place, he's looking around and he's thinking, he says, you will be missed. When that says that, you will be, I think it's heartfelt. Your seat's going to be empty. I'm going to miss you. I really think that's, what, I, would, I would say that's what that means in, in verse 18. Verse 19, on the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself. When the matter was at hand, it remained beside the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it, as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the boy, saying, Go find the arrows. And if I say to the boy, Look, the arrows are on this side if you take them, then you are to come for it. As the Lord lives, it is safe for you, because there is no danger. But if I say to you, Look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. Then it's for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. Um, there's one part of the verse I want to bring up. Um, verse 22. Verse 22. I want you to remember this verse when we get to the end of the chapter. What he's basically saying is he's going to bring he's going to bring a boy. Jonathan said, I'm going to bring a boy out here. There's going to be a banquet going on. There's going to be an empty seat. Dave, you're going to be hiding on the hill. I'm going to bring my boy out. He's got the arrows. I've got the bow. I'm going to shoot some arrows. If the arrows land here, and by the way, he's good at shooting arrows. You're going to be that day. Unless you're a prince of Israel. I'm pretty sure you have a lot of time to shoot arrows. I'm going to shoot you. If you're here, come down. I give you my word and my life. It is safe. If I shoot them over you, if I shoot them over a certain direction, and I send the boy to go get a that means my dad wants to kill you, run. So that's the plan. Verse 22. If you see the arrows go beyond you, then take off. Run away. Remember that verse. Later. Verse 24. So David hid himself in the When the new, new, new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on the seat, at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite and Abner sat by Saul's side. Abner, you're going to pick up on him later. But David's place was empty. Why did, oh, by the way, notice where he's, it says his seat is by the wall. Anybody know why he's got his back to the wall? Those, yeah, you don't want anybody to come get you. You don't trust anybody in back of you. So he's typically always sitting with his back to the wall. Jonathan's looking at him. There's an empty seat. It's not there. Yet Saul, verse 45, did not say anything that day. For he thought, something has happened to him. He's not clean. Surely he's not clean. Um, just to keep contextually speaking in this very clearly, there's a lot of Levitical law about being clean. It's really for adults only when I say that I'm not joking you. In, in Leviticus, you can look it up if you like. But it means he's not clean. Maybe he's not here. 
You know, it's uh, it's not unusual. So the king doesn't react. There's an empty seat. He just suddenly says anything. But I'm sure Johnson's thinking, man, maybe my dad doesn't want to be bad. He didn't say anything. Verse 22. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul. Here it is, ready? David earnestly asked me to leave to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in this city. My brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. By the way, that's a long answer to your dad. And you got to remember, his dad is the king. And so, if, if you call this a justifiable lie, I don't care what you call it, you lie, the strategy. And so this is what's happening. Verse 30, then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. I, yeah, I'm sure there's a modern day equivalent of that. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame, to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, you and your kingdom shall um, be, be established. Therefore, sin and bring him to die for me, for he sure, shall surely die. When, go back to verse 30. This is, to me, I think, one of the earliest chronicle conversations of a husband looking at his wife and saying, your son and your daughter just messed up. So whenever the mother gets the blame of raising a kid, this, I think, is one of those particular places. So um, anyway... Um, you look at this, and he is in a rage. He's in a fit. And by the way, good to see that baby back. Yeah, that, we, we forgot to, uh, to make mention. I, I, you know, I cannot remember her. Maya. That's it. So it's been some time in NICU, right? For a little bit. So we were, yeah, a week in NICU. So we, I, I didn't see you sneak in this. So anyway, um, we got a beautiful baby. We keep going. Playing here. Um, verse. 31, am I easily distracted? Yes, I am. Um, <laughs> verse 32. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, said, Why should he be put to death? This is Jonathan speaking to his dad in front of guests, in front of the royal court. He goes, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? May sound like a very rational question, correct? But you do not do that in front of a monarch in that era, in that time. In that place. You don't do it. Dad, why are you trying to kill him? What has he done? Verse 33. But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. That may be one of the biggest understatements ever. <laughs> Saul hurled his spear at him to kill his own son. That's his answer. Dad, why are you trying to kill him? Shoot. Throws a spear and just barely misses his head. Verse 34. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. What a powerful triangle this is. The king of Israel is being confronted by the son of the king of Israel on behalf of the future king of Israel. This drama is unfolding. A movie couldn't keep up with this. Jonathan gets up in a fierce rage of anger, having just been questioned, having just had a spear thrown at his head, and storms off out of the banquet hall and leaves. 
He's saying this, I'm stuck being your son, but my heart is somewhere else. What happens? Keep in mind, David is sitting by a stone, a boulder, waiting two days for an answer. He ought to be thinking in his mind, what's going on in his mind? He's got to be thinking, at any moment there's activity, somebody's going to come out and send the word. Verse 35. In the morning, this is day three, Jonathan goes out into the field to the appointment with David, and with him a little boy. And he says to his boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. So nothing unusual here, right? As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. When the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, is not the arrow beyond you? Which was the sign. That means run. It means my dad's going to kill you. In verse 38, Jonathan called after the boy, hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy, Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows, came to his master, but the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, go and carry them into the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap, fell on his face to the ground and wept and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with another. David weeping the most. Do you remember verse 22 when I said, I'm gonna, when the arrows go, run, that means my dad wants to kill you. We shot the arrows. And David didn't run. David waited by the boulder. And at that moment, he calls the boy and says, just run, just go back in. And the boy goes in there not knowing anything with the arrows. And Jonathan runs up the hill to the boulder and embraces David. As much as he said, I want you to run when I know for sure that my dad is wanting to kill you, he did everything to run up there to say, I love you, and I don't know how I'm going to live without your friendship. I have watched men give eulogies over funerals to say, there may be a life in that casket, but my heart is right there too. My best friend is there. David is weeping. Jonathan is weeping. Why is this so hard on them? Because David understands that he has one man to trust and it's Jonathan. Jonathan says this, Everybody likes me for who I am as a, as a prince of Israel. Everybody likes me for where I live, for the women I have, for the money I have, for the palace I live in. You love me for exactly who I am. And David knows when I lose Jonathan, and Jonathan says when I lose David, we've lost a connection that we will never have again on this earth. This is a brotherhood that exists in this very near. And I'm sure in their minds, they're wondering what is going to happen. Three days, he sat by that boulder thinking, what's going to happen? Some of you have been sitting by a boulder for a long time wondering, why am I stuck here? Why am I stuck here waiting? We mentioned a couple weeks ago that we, the world lives on expectations. Expectations that you'll do right, you'll do wrong, you'll do the expectations that whatever. We live on promises. As much as we live on the promises of God, here's something that you don't run away from. Ready for this? Emotion. That means you can have an absolute promise from God that He will see you through, but no matter what you're going through, if it's a medical procedure, if it's a court hearing, if it's something going that uh, 
in your life where you're just you just feel like you're just uncertain about things, where you feel like you're listless and everybody else has their role to play with you, when you feel like you're stuck at that boulder, understand something. It is okay to have emotion. The very worst thing you can do to walk up to somebody and say, don't cry. You know God has us under control. No, you absolutely cry. You weep. You are nervous. You can be nervous. If you're afraid, you can be. You, you get, go through these emotions, but they do not become your God. To understand something, he waited by that boulder. Why? Because there was a promise. But it didn't mean he wasn't afraid. It didn't mean he wasn't uncertain. Sometimes I don't know why bad things happen. I don't know why situations go wrong. And I can't answer it. You know, I looked at Carrie earlier in the, in the last service, and I'm like, I, I'm not going to just pull up, oh, well, this is why you spent all this time in the hospital and we're fighting for your life, and we we're all wrecked thinking we'd lose you. Well, now, you know, we had somebody join the church because, no, I'm not going to just throw out a trite comment like that. I don't know why that happened. But in smaller moments of our life where we run into struggles and challenges and things don't go our way and we get burned, if you've ever been like David, you've been fair, you've been honest, and nobody nobody trusted in you. Nobody believed in you. And you, you're sitting here wondering, I'm just trying to do my best. And what happens? You get discouraged. You ever wonder what happens when you do something and someone fails you and you think, God, why would this happen? When I was building my house, it was interesting. Everything was going well. My whole reason for getting that home is being able to share it for people to use at any, at, at their, at any time they wanted to, for God to get the glory and be able to use that property. And everything happened that way. I mean everything. Got the place for a nickel. Boy, they're in the worst economic land times ever. My friends built this place. I... People are calling me, I've got windows you can... I build my house around free windows and doors that I have. You know, friends came in and helped and build things and cutting down limbs. And this thing was going great. Everything was perfect. The last thing, the dock on the end of the sentence was a dock I was building. I hired this guy from Craigslist. And he came out there and he built a dock. And I'm like, oh yeah, it's going to be great. Some people want to get married out there. And it's going to be good. And then they're building the dock. And this, this guy was like, about my age, just kind of you tell it a rough life, and he'd be late, always kind of need more money. And I just remember getting out there, he's plugging along. I just go on the bank, had some money, I'm like, you know what? I said, hey, just go ahead, here it is, man. I'm, you guys are doing great. Oh, yeah, thanks, takes the money, takes the cash, puts it in his pocket. I go around the front of the house. Ten minutes later, I see he and his buddy, you know what I was in there. Here comes this hoopty card. I mean, just I mean, just flying right by me. I'm like, hey. and you're just focused, and I'm like, and I said to my buddy, I said, that's the last time I'll see that baby. And I said, I don't believe it. I'm calling them, calling them, and, you know. And I'm talking to these friends, and they're like, oh yeah, we got somebody they can build your dog. Like you do. And so yeah, and so get the house, I look out there, I see somebody on my dock, I go walking up and get closer and closer. I get there, and it's James. Now, James, you were 16 at the time. How old were you? 17? 17? You're 17. You're a lightweight 17. <laughs> <laughs> so I get there and I'm like, I'm yeah, I'm, I'm uh, 
thing when my parents said to come repair your dock. And I'm thinking, yeah, okay. Study and he's like trying to figure. I mean, he's like an engineer looking at it. Now makes sense. You know, like watching you and and figuring things out. And I'm like, I'm looking at my buddy and I'm like, I mean, people are going to be standing on this thing. He said, I said, well, um, it's nice to meet you. I've actually met you before. My name is James Zetmeyer. I said. You're a Zetmeyer. I said, yeah. And I knew Zetmeyer. And I knew of you guys. Not well, but I knew of you, of your parents. And I said, you're a Zetmeyer? I said, you got it. And we walked. I said, start whenever you want. We walked away. And my buddy said, what was that? Just, uh, I said, the man's a Zetmeyer. I know his family. He can't figure out there be like 30 uncles and cousins out there. Like, raised in an Amish farm. They're amazing. And I said, well, get it done. And sure enough. You know, he finishes it. It's amazing. We were talking yesterday as you have to mapping things out. And I said, you know, thank God for the guy stealing the money. What if the guy had not done that? That was the best $350 loss, I think. Or maybe it was more than that. I don't know. You're worth more than that. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking, man, that was the best loss. He says, you know what's so cool? My sisters, when you're a college minister, got involved in your college ministry. And why? That's like, and now... Family is part of a church. You could, I could not have planned. We could not have strategized enough. How do we reach the Zentmeyers in Odessa? And so what happens is when you're sitting beside your boulder and you're wondering, and everybody else is kind of surprised. They say things like, oh, I know you're going to do it, but they're surprised that you know it. And you're wondering, man, when are we going to get through this? How am I going to make it? Sitting by that boulder can be a great and wonderful journey. Not just waiting for the news, but the journey of the wait. And so verse 42, after this incredible goodbye, Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Proverbs 17, 17 says this, that uh, a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born to a person. But this message is not just on friendship. This message is not just on loyalty. This message is based on something bigger. It's a covenant. Has anybody ever asked you, are you religious? Anybody ever ask you that? I worked at the banks one time, and that was the religious thing. There was an all-you-can-eat Italian place on Dillman. Do you remember that one? Like, uh, GFC is there. You know what I'm talking about? Was that? Duke de Becca, right? Yeah, Duke. Well, they had a room. It was called the Pope Room. When I left the bank, they all my my crew invited me to. We sat around and had dinner in the Pope group, and they were sitting there as happy as they were like, "It's a Pope. We didn't really like it." <laughs> and I just rolled with it. I was a religious guy, and I would talk to them like one on one. Like it's not about religion, but it's about a what? A relationship. Say it all the time, don't we? We earnestly ask you this question. This is a thought. 
Have you ever thought? As much as we looked at a relationship with him, God loves a relationship with you. A covenant is not just signed by one party in adherence to another. Two parties come together and say we are knit together and nothing will separate us. Have you ever thought about that? That there is a covenant that God admires and respects about you. I've said this before, I said a long time, I'll be the king of repeat here. And then weddings <coughs> in America might be for this forever. They would sure that you that you are first. But it's worth me bringing back up. I had a friend ask me a question. And it really, really made me think. They asked the question, they said, if you could relive a moment in your life, what would that moment be? I mean, you have, they first they said a day, then I shrink it down a moment. They said, you have to relive this moment exactly as it happened. You can't change anything. You can't change the circumstance. You can't change the consequence. Nothing. What would that moment be? And so I would ask people, hey, what would that moment be? And I mean, you just kind of get this look of like, uh, you know, gosh, you only had one moment. What was that moment? What is that moment? And so I was talking to my friends, a couple, and I said, the wife said, and she started crying, she had tears. She said, what is it? She said, I know exactly what that is. She said, we're at the top of the Blue Ridge Mountains, we're on a mountain, and we hiked up there, and with all the family, and we're all watching the sunset, and she said, it was okay. She said, I looked, and all my kids were there with their spouses and future spouse. And she said, we were all getting along. And she said, and you could see it in her face. She said, that was a moment that I'll never forget, that I could relive in It was then that I realized something. There was a common denominator in everyone's story. Here it is. The common denominator was, was not, oh, it was a big mountain, or it was a majestic sea, or it was, it was an accomplishment. None of that. There was not one mention of graduation, or I saw a beautiful sunset. The common denominator was this. It was a moment that was shared with those in love. Had everything to do with people. Now I'm going to ask you to give me a large amount of theological grace. Here it is. If I were, if we were to ask God, if you were to ask God, God, what would that one moment be that you wish to relive? And remember, and relive exactly as it was in regard to me, what would it be? It would be more than likely, if there was any truth in this kind of a scenario, it would be a moment that you shared with him. That's a covenant that you and I have with understanding this. We love him even when we fail him and love us. What a covenant. When, you, when, you, when you're like Jonathan and you leave all you know to follow somebody in David, he's not just following David because he's a friend, because he knows also he is the anointed king of Israel. And so when I've been in Afghanistan and I've sat, I've sat on the banks of, of, of water watching as they 
fake swim lessons, and they, they took a man, and they were walking him through the water like they were getting a swim lesson. And the whole time on the shoreline, somebody was yelling in, in the language of Darcy, that what, this is what you do, this is what you, how to swim. But in reality, there's a pastor sitting there whispering scripture in his ear, baptizing him, because they know if he was seen to be baptized, he'd be executed. By who? By his own family. And so this man to lead his family to walk into faith is something incredible. For us, most of us in, in society, we're still tied in, in culture to, to God. I mean, as much as the loons try to take it out of here and there, and, you know, don't take this in the, don't put this in the oath, and don't do this. And don't, for the most part, I get Wednesday to go down to a city, a government, a city government meeting, and I get to pray before the meeting. Most schools still will let us in as Christian agencies. But in India, when Shale has seated in India, people going to be baptized and are singing the song um, what's that song I wish I've decided to follow Jesus he wrote that song, we all sing that song he said, children they're singing this I've decided to follow Jesus as people are walking in knowing they're going to be written out of their family they're going to be taken away from the love of the society that they knew and they were leaving everything and they were Willingly walking into a covenant with the Lord who's been waiting to love you back. If you have never walked into that covenant with the Lord, you are missing it. If Jesus is only a moral figure and a good teacher and someone to emulate, you have missed everything. The covenant that he has for you and I is something that is real. It is something that cannot be broken. Are you ready for this? Chris, you and I cannot mess it up. Is that powerful? We look at our life and we, th- we keep thinking we have the ability to be loved more than we can love ourselves by the one who gave love to begin with. If you've never entered into that, I suppose you hear me saying without beating you over the head of the mountain, why would you want to live without it? Why would you want to fight and try? Religion doesn't work. It's more than a relationship with you and him. It's a relationship with he and you. And for those of you who do believe, maybe you are at that boulder and it's day three and you've been waiting. And you're in a waiting period and you know what the promises are. Your emotion is real. But God is coming for you. He's coming for you in a way that you can't plan like a guy running away from you with all the money for a dock, and God gives you a blessing beyond measure. Maybe one of those things has happened. Would you pray? Jesus, thank you. That you've given us a chance. In this message to understand what a covenant is. That God, a covenant between you and I, between us. But Father, it's a covenant that cannot be broken. We cannot mess it up. God, it is something that uh, we talk about in the area of eternal security. We talk about salvation that cannot be lost. But, Father, it is also in a relationship that cannot be lost. That, Father, at any moment we turn to you, we cannot help but see the greatness of the power for who you are. And, God, there will be moments that we walk away and we forget what it's like. God, remind us that you're there. Father, for those in here who never received you as their Savior, and never entered that covenant, 
Lord, I would pray that the person that brought them, or they come to one of us, and simply acknowledge this. It's so simple. That, Father, we are sinners. That we cannot fix ourselves, and we are saved by your grace. That, Father, we are saved because of your death on the cross, and we are given hope and new life because of you and an empty tomb. Father, thank you for the salvation of who you are. But Father, thank you for those of us who are believers who continue to walk. And we do struggle that, Father, you remind us of that covenant. It's not just between us and you, Lord. The covenant is tied between you and us. Well, for that, we are so grateful. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, stand together. And then, um, don't forget, we have an old-fashioned baptism service. I hope to see you there. And I'll be right after this service. About 10 minutes after.